And I think it really kind of more than just prepares you for a literary life, prepares you for life in general. Welcome to the 24th episode of All of the Above, a weekly podcast about design, code, and learning. Each week, an instructional designer, a user experience designer, and a software engineer take apart the world one topic at a time. My name is Brian Brush, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Sam Bantner. So and Sean Duran. Hello, guys. You guys are you're so magnificent, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this week, I'm just going to completely ignore that. This week, we are honored to have the wonderfully talented Laura Masters with us. How are you doing, Laura? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Not too shabby. So before we kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself? Sure. I am a copywriter in Boston. Um, I've been a copywriter for about three years now, and I've worked with a lot of different clients from Subway to Samsung to Liberty Mutual. Um, And I'm now at DraftKings, a startup, and I'm graduating from my master's program on Monday. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. I'm pretty excited. I wrote a collection of short stories and realized after the fact, like after I had written them and handed them in, that they are all about death. So I'm a really happy and uplifting person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Your stories, which I've been reading, uh, have made me get a little emotional at times. Oh, good. No, that's super good. I (laughs) made my roommate cry once while she was on the treadmill at the gym because she was reading one of my stories. Yeah, it, it's a twisted <laughs> thing for those of us that enjoy writing when we make somebody cry and that makes us happy. I love that. I want to like twist all your emotions into a ball until you can't feel feelings anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, look forward to uh, Laura's works being on the, the bookshelf someday so you can make yourself sad. Every, everyone needs a good cry every now and then. Well, I'm just wondering, uh, Laura, do you, how deeply do you feel emotions? I know this is a weird question, but like... Oh my gosh, I almost cried three times today already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a lot of things all the time. Um, I kind of feel like, um, you know how a leaf just kind of dangles and the wind kind of pulls it wherever it goes? Mm-hmm. I sometimes just kind of feel like that. That's kind of how my emotions feel sometimes. And there's proof that you're a writer in case it wasn't already evident. <laughs> Like, uh, like the world just kind of pulls me in these ebbs and flows. Cool. Interesting. Well, hopefully plenty of those ebbs are also happy and not sad. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Like, I think crying doesn't always have to be a sad thing. I think sometimes something can be like so beautiful or something so awe-inspiring that you just tear up a little bit. There's some uh, new research that I've been reading about how, like, trying to figure out why people cry when they're super happy. Um, And it's partially because we can get to a point where, like, we are so incredibly happy that our minds aren't necessarily prepared for how to handle that. And the tears are a way to, like, reduce the dopamine levels and keep us, like, at a sane balance. (laughs) That makes so much sense. We can't overload on dopamine. Yeah. Yeah, because then we'd all just be, like, high on life all the time. You'd be like those rats that they throw in the trash after they die. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm not sure what the hell that even means. (laughs) I feel like if Sam were to read my collection, he wouldn't cry at all. He would just be like, what, you thought this was sad? (laughs) It would probably just be a regular Tuesday for Sam. (laughs) All right. Anyway. Um, 
So yeah, so part of the reason that we're having uh, Laura on the show is not only is she incredibly talented, but she's also, as a writer, a very gifted storyteller. And that's our topic for this week, which is storytelling. Um, so if you guys are ready, I can jump into our first subtopic this week. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kick things off. And essentially what I want to discuss is uh, the idea that storytelling is a crucial part of learning. So my focus in instructional design has always been heavily centered around adult learners. And the more I research the way in which we learn as adults, the more I see the importance of storytelling and personal narratives. And I'm certainly not the only person to have identified this. So there were two researchers, Carolyn Clark and Marsha Rossiter, and they argued that as we grow older, we repeatedly revise and alter our personal narratives so that we can better store and understand new discoveries and perspectives and experiences. Um, And I couldn't agree with them more on that. And another crucial figure in the world of adult learning, Malcolm Knowles, uh, also argued the importance of not only creating stories, but also sharing them. Um, So throughout most of his books, he states that sharing stories with others is important for adult learners. And the reason for that is there are sort of numerous ones. So um, from making oneself feel validated to helping draw connections between past experiences and new knowledge, um, and also just the solidification of information in our memory through the act of storytelling. So I wanted to know all of your thoughts on storytelling as an educational tool. Um, And I'm also curious if you all can think of an instance in which a story or the act of telling a story helped you remember information or come to understand something that you were struggling with. So uh, Laura, can I ambush you by making you start for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think storytelling is the original education tool. It's how we got books like Beowulf mm-hmm. through the oral tradition. And like, that's really how like people learned initially. And I think it's a really good tool now to use for education as well, because um, I was actually thinking about this a lot today, because I had a woman from my undergrad college, Denison, reach out to me and ask if she could interview me for research she's doing about English majors and how an English major helps help to prepare you for whatever job you're in now. Um, So I was considering all the books that I've read and how reading literature is not necessarily reading literature for literature's sake, but it also teaches you the nuances of how people feel and how people deal with situations and how people interact, how the world works, how politics work, how you fit into that entire world. And I think it really kind of more than just prepares you for a literary life, prepares you for life in general. You and I have had sort of a similar college experience for undergrad because I studied world literatures. And part of the reason that I consider that an incredibly like beneficial degree to have earned was because I was able to better understand the world around me through these stories that I was reading. And that in itself was its own education. And not only did my my undergraduate degree teach me you know, how to interpret the literature and understand it, but it also opened me up to stories that made me better understand the world and where I fit in that, not just in the present, but also historically throughout time. So it's an incredible tool for teaching. But um, Sean, what are some of your thoughts on this? You said like you were you weren't reading literature for literature's sake. You were reading it to read the story and learn about people or how humans interact or mm-hmm. the situations they're in. It seems like uh, they're like Harvard business case studies, but with a with a more human element to it. Like, so you can get uh, like lessons learned from it and can grow as a person, and rather than uh, like growing as a, an MBA or what have you. Mm-hmm. And you can learn archetypes and see like oh, in real life. This 
this, I'm dealing with this situation, which is similar to this book that I read. And you can then go about your life in that sort of manner, which was rather interesting. I think that's definitely part of it. But I also think that it teaches you how to be a more sensitive and empathetic person. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with J.D. Salinger's short stories, but I'm thinking in particular of um, It's a Beautiful Day for Banana Fishing. And I think that story taught me a lot about the nuances of different people's behavior. And I think that coupled with um, my past job experiences where I was interacting with people on a daily basis helped me to be more readily available as a sensitive person to um, be open to people and their emotional stasis at the time, like um, realizing that the iceberg is not what you see above the surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, uh, Salinger has always been incredibly important to me as well. So like these stories of Seymour mm -hmm. coming from a family that has struggled with a lot of family members having depression and several suicides and things like that, which is a bit dark for our show, but like <laughs> those stories, yeah, and seeing how like the death of Seymour affected everyone around him. Like that made me one, be able to relate to the story because I was familiar with what that pain was like, but it also made me be able to see what other people's perspectives were like, because while I was maybe like focused on my own feelings, reading a story like that helped me better understand how it affects everyone. And so then I was able to be more empathetic to other family members who were struggling or people that were just friends and weren't necessarily close to some of the uncles that I lost. So the ability to empathize and learning through that is also something that's, I think, a pretty powerful tool of storytelling. So I completely agree with you there, Laura. And Sam, since I know we've been talking a lot about oral storytelling and also literature, it looks like you have some thoughts about physical storytelling. Yeah, so physical storytelling as in not theater, because when people think of physical storytelling, they think of acting or theater or things like that. But I'm thinking more <clears throat> objects or things that you would see in a museum. Everything, when you go to a museum, you kind of just look around and look at things. And there's always like a little tiny card beside it that has some information about the artist and probably where they came up with everything. But what people don't understand is the are that these objects, there's an entire story, if not an entire society wrapped around them. So how this object came to be is a story in and of itself. Even if we don't know the story, there is a story there to why that object is setting in some museum somewhere in the world. Probably in Columbus, Ohio, since we have some of the best museums. Do you? No. No. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say. No, 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 not at all. Pe people should visit our wonderful city, but not if you just want to see museums. Yeah, we do have a two-headed cow, taxidermy two-headed cow. That's cool. Because we're very heavy in agriculture. So mm -hmm. there's that, which is pretty cool to see. Do you want to know something interesting? Yeah. At museums, I often only take pictures of those little cards um, because then I take them and use them as inspiration for stories. <laughs> that makes me, I'm going to have to, one, see if I can link to the show notes, and two, I'll make sure that we send the link over to you as well. But there is a podcast on the Radiotopia Network called The Allusionist with an A, and on that they have an episode in which they talk about creating those little placards and how there are like people at museums who watch and keep track of like how long people read them and what's too long and too short of a little placard and um, the fact that very few people actually read them. So the fact that you not only read them, but also take pictures of them, I think would make those people incredibly happy. Probably. <laughs> I find them really inspiring. They do have some pretty cool things on the placards. I, I rarely read them unless yeah. I'm really interested in what I'm looking at. I'm not much of an art person. So looking at art is kind of bleh to me, mm -hmm. but looking at like engineered <laughs> objects, like those things are 
pretty cool. Or if it's very abstract art, I absolutely love that because I just like oh, crazy people. I think there's a thing that both, like all of you might like that's at the ICA right now. It's the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. Um, Andrew Bird has done an installation. Oh, and Andrew Bird. Yeah, I love yes. Andrew Bird. Uh, and it's amazing. Um, let me see if I can find a link. He created all of these um, speakers. It's a really banal word for it, but they're kind of speakers. Um, and each one is hooked up to an iPod Nano. And they each have a different, or a shuffle maybe, but they each have a different track. Um, and they are synced up to all play their own various tracks. So that when you walk around the room, you hear different parts of the same song playing. Hmm. Hold on, let me see if I can find a link. That does sound incredibly interesting because I love hearing songs like deconstructed as well. Oh my gosh. I stayed in there for like an hour, I think, just listening to all of it. And he also made these little speaker thingies out of like uh, recycled paper. That's crazy. I I like how all three of you put links (laughs) into the the Skype at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, yes. you found it, Sean. So yeah, we will have to... uh, Oh, all of you should find it. I'm bad at the Google. <laughs> That's all right. Um, but that does remind me that for our audience listening, if you want to see the links that we're currently sharing with each other, uh, you can find those by going to alloftheabove.audio slash episodes slash 24. Um, but I feel like we've hit on my topic pretty well. Um, so, Sean, do we want to transition over to your section? Of course. Yes, let's. Walk with me as we uh, come over here. <laughs> Do you know the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock? Uh, I, I understood five of those words. <laughs> oh, um, it's a poem by T.S. Eliot, and the opening lines are, Let us go then, you and I. <laughs> I I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> Literature. <laughs> Uh, let us go then, you and I, to where the sun is stretched out against the sky, like a patient theorized on a table, something like that. You should look it up. Well, I, adding I, that to the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we, we're over here now. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> so good at derailing conversations. <laughs> quite all right <laughs> yeah but I, be- I believe it's... the place sean is taking us is to one where we will discuss digital footprints <laughs> thank you you're welcome <laughs> um yeah so over here um <laughs> if if you can see in this corner uh <laughs> we have this footprint uh, we leave these footprints everywhere and you can you can track people uh, by what they say and do online or on their, their cell phones and things like that. And, and it doesn't really go away. The internet is roughly forever, uh, as we know of, until the, we have no power. And then we have other things to worry about. But the <laughs> fact that like, those things continue to exist, how they affect uh, how we tell our story. Like if I have to tell the story of Sean or the story of Brian or the story of Laura and maybe the story of Sam. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Uh, how these artifacts facts and pictures and words that we've shared out accumulate over time and how that affects that everything like that but also how that sense of forever limits what we share and what we remember uh, i know there was a study uh done i i can't really quote this because uh, i just remembered it right now uh, but they showed uh people status updates that they themselves did not make but since it was within the context of like hey this is a uh, we're showing you 
you things that you've seen said before. And it was a mixture of things that they made up and were real. And they just believed everything that they were seen, uh, shown, um, which is crazy because they it's it's not it's not true. But the fact that our memories can get altered because of these digital things we sort of hold as truth uh, exist. And I am wandering. I'm sorry. I I led you to this one corner, and I'm out outside in the alley. And to bring it back, That's right. you're you're allowed to be a ghost that yes, walks through the walls. Uh, but to bring it back, <laughs> so my mortal friends can. <laughs> have fun with this um, truth. What what do you guys think about the things I just said? <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess I can. Sorry. <laughs> I I will try to bring us back to a, a solid place again. Um, so, sort of the idea that I think you're trying to ask us is um, what we feel about these digital footprints and like the stories that they leave behind, um, which is something that's interested me uh, a bit. And I've kind of mentioned it before on the show, but I'm pretty concerned with what it's going to be like with children growing up entirely in a digital, constantly connected world. Um, and so, like for children, most of them have parents who have shared almost every aspect of their life from l- literally their birth until whenever they unbirth uh, uh, whenever the parents essentially yeah i guess whenever the parents die um so things from raging from their biggest achievements to their most embarrassing moments uh are somewhat permanently stored and thus that's kind of forcing everyone to be much more honest about their personal narratives um and so with storytelling being a part of how we establish our identity choosing when and what stories we share is an incredibly important part of how we communicate who we are as a person. Um, and so these digital footprints, as Sean calls them, are sort of altering our ability to choose when and what we share. Um, so it doesn't just affect children. As adults, we may think something's fine to share in one moment and not necessarily at another point in our lives. So that drunken night in Chicago may have been fun to post and talk about a while ago, but come time for a job search, it may no longer be so great. Um, and so that's what's like most interesting to me about the idea of digital footprints and their effect on storytelling is traditionally storytelling has been in the moment, but now with the digital world, storing so much of our lives, every single moment can be shared without our control and can be retold as a story at any point. Um, So that, I don't know, it just intrigues me, but also kind of terrifies me in a way because it feels like I no longer have the ability to control like how I am perceived or what I have to say about myself. Uh, But uh, Laura, what are your thoughts on this? I had a friend tell me a while ago that it is absolutely none of my business what other people think of me. And I think that is pretty apropos when it comes to digital footprints and storytelling and your personal narrative. Um, Because really anyone can perceive what you're putting out there as something. But should that be something that we're all concerned with when we're putting stuff out there? I mean, beyond the, this was a drunken mistake of an Instagram and I can delete it the next morning. (laughs) Um, But I mean, like the things that you're choosing to represent your life and represent your day to day and represent your family members' lives, I think it is forcing us to be more honest and I think that's a good thing um, I just wonder if we should all be so concerned with how other people perceive our stories I don't think so which yeah uh, that's definitely a, a question for the ages I feel which will probably be a sort of never ending question because it's something I think if we look all the way back to even some original oral storytelling we can see people being concerned about their perception and, and the way that they will be remembered 
Yeah. And then there's like the loss of tall tales, like that those won't really <laughs> exist anymore. It's like, oh, Pixar didn't happen. It's like <laughs> Well, also, I think maybe tall tales do still exist, but they're just like tall tales now are like, I'm doing yoga on top of this mountain. Oh wait, this mountain's really just like a little tiny rock and there are five filters on this. Like that's the new <laughs> tall tale. <laughs> I, I think I like that new description for the tall tale. Yeah, it's a Photoshop for our lives. Photoshop for our lives. It sounds like a soap opera. <laughs> I hope it stars Joey Gerbiani. Me too. <laughs> it's actually a, it's going to appear on a IFC or in uh, two weeks, actually. Oh, I hope so. Hey, Lifetime, speaking of IFC, Lifetime has been putting out some quality films. I, I'll need to look at this again because I don't believe you. <laughs> there was uh, there was one about the three women that were abducted in Cleveland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just got real dark. <laughs> Sorry, guys, once again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Uh... <laughs> I'll, I'll just stick with Golden Girls on the Lifetime Network. Wow. But Sam, what are uh, your thoughts to digital footprints? So digital footprints are kind of a thing right now because digital and footprint are both buzzwords. Everything's a buzzword really right now. Yeah, it'll just there's, there's never not going to be buzzwords anymore. Thanks, Internet. You destroyed the world. You created buzzwords. But they're just buzzwords right now. So if we think back to our parents when uh, they were younger, that's when everybody started collectively getting cameras and actually taking photos of things. And they most likely went through this exact same thing of the, the Polaroid footprint or whatever, the film footprint or whatever you want to call it. So they were probably worried about this exact same thing. Like, oh, we're going to have all these photos now. And like people are going to be able to look at these photos. And if you go back further before that, I, I don't know, but just another way of documenting stories. So I think this is going to be an ongoing thing and there's going to be something after the digital footprint, like the neuro footprint where everyone is just connected to everybody and there's like a queen controlling everyone. So there's going to be like that. <laughs> Have you given a lot of thought to this whole queen theory? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a queen there, and like it's has a lot to do with the Matrix, since you know that was a documentary of our lives currently. So eventually, someone's going to wake up and find this queen, air quotes, and then the machine empire will go down. But not really. I do appreciate that it's a queen, though. Yeah, I mean, I like queens better as rulers. Like they just sound a lot better than a king. Yeah, king always sounds a little ominous, but that may have a lot to say about our stereotypes concerning gender. Do you think it's Beyonce? I think it's Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think it's probably blue. Ivy. Blue? Beyond, yeah, blue Ivy. Oh, okay. <laughs> took me a second. <laughs> Clearly, my pop culture is not that strong. But it, Sean, did since I know you, you rambled, and we now have you back in the yeah. room. Did you have any final thoughts to your topic? Yeah, like the, I guess what Laura said, like not being so concerned about what image you're projecting out into the world, because um, you you lose that childlike state of wonder and playfulness once you restrict everything that's going out. Obviously, you don't want to share everything, uh, but because that could get real bad real fast. But <laughs> not not feeling so restrained in some resort, which I am yeah, feeling and- right now. <laughs> 
I so I work with children. I work with children on a day to day, and I have to deal with all these regulations and things like, oh, we can't do that because it's a child, or can't do this because it's a child. We can't take this information and share it, or do anything like that because it's a child. But we have these digital footprints, and these all this information is collected and stored somewhere. And there's a really good uh, graphic I've seen somewhere where there are these people complaining about Google having all your data and just all the data by your footprint of what you're posting online. But then someone asked the question, like, what does it matter? Like, what are they going to do with it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the same about our concerns and fears about like the NSA's programs, but privacy is still, I think, a fundamental part of what it is to be human. Being able to, even though we shouldn't necessarily care what people think, but being able to create our own narrative and share that and then only sort of let select people into our more intimate like thoughts and feelings. I think that's a big part of what it is to like be human and to connect with another human. Um, so I can, I think people's fears when they look at like how this digital stuff is so easily spread and easily like calculated and interpreted through all of these various like data collection services. Um, I think those things cause the fear that maybe like we won't be able to choose who we are intimate and connect with in such a, a personal manner also with the, the, the like what are they going to do with it it's fine until uh you're in a position where any all the information that has been stored up against you can be used against you even if it's right or wrong uh in whatever context that they throw it in or what light they uh shine on it uh it's just up until that point it's like ah, it doesn't really matter until like oh crap <laughs> Do you guys watch Last Week Tonight with John Oliver? Yeah. No. There was one episode where he interviewed Edward Snowden, mm -hmm. and they talked about the whole NSA thing, um, and they were interviewing people, I think it was in Times Square, and they were asking if they knew who Edward Snowden was, um, and like a handful of people knew, and then they were also asking people um, what they would do or how they would feel if they knew the the government had their dick pics. Um, and that was like how they got the general public to relate to the gravity of the NSA invading your privacy. Like it wasn't your financial situation and it wasn't your like uh, library card or like what you're ordering on Amazon. It was your dick pics. Like that's how people could get outraged about it. And like that's how they felt their privacy was invaded. So I feel like a lot of people maybe don't understand what that invasion of privacy means anyway if like i don't know yeah especially when it's shared within the context of being something to protect us yes i think this is the like most in-depth we've ever gone into a political <laughs> situation before on the show so but let's say one more thing <laughs> okay all right <laughs> So the internet was founded upon being an open structure for anybody to access. So the internet itself has always just been open. And now we're really getting regulations and things trying to pop onto the internet where we restrict a lot of this stuff happening. But being an open framework and being founded upon open standards, this is this is how we kind of want things to move forward. And uh, it's I don't necessarily agree with that. But it, just because something started as an open approach doesn't mean that that is the best version of it. I don't think it's the best, but it's a step forward. Restricting things is taking steps backwards. But I'm not necessarily saying to restrict things either. Yeah, but it's just, it's 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 a very good step forward. It's just people need to understand the gravity, like you guys were saying, of what they're doing. But they also need to stop being so uptight with everything and just complaining every little thing, like like the thanks Obama gifts that I get all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, do you think also maybe that um, without restriction or without any kind of uh, structure placed on it, that companies that have more money or, um, I mean, money equals power, so more money, more power, would be able to access things that other people would not? And then a free will, like a free reign situation on the internet would not necessarily end up being free reign? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be people who kind of jump on this and take advantage of everything that's there. But if it is... Also known as Comcast. Yeah. If it is completely open and completely free reign, like a free market, like kind of what we're in, then there will be things like this that happen. But then it's up to the people to kind of stop those things from happening. So this is like a... Well, and that's where the fear of having all of our information shared starts. But uh, I feel like that debate could go on for ages. Probably. So so I'm going to segue us into the next... Uh, topic. So Sam, do you want to discuss, since we've started a technology conversation, discuss uh, your your topic centered around technology? Yeah, so it's not even really, uh, it's a very open-ended topic. Uh, but ultimately, the question I'm going to ask, which I'm going to ask now, and then I'll kind of talk about it, and then everyone can just share words. Uh, but how has technology changed the way that we engineer our stories? Not the way that we distribute our stories, but the way we actually create the stories. I don't know how many times I'm hanging out with friends, and it's I always thought this was a cliche, haha, whatever, but it's been happening so much lately. I'll be hanging out with friends, we'll be talking, having a good story or a good time, and then someone will start talking about something, and I'll just be completely out of the loop. And the next thing that comes out of the mouth is something that really irks me. But it's, oh, you didn't see read what I posted on Facebook? Like, no, I did not. Like, but the story was generated from Facebook of sorts, and then uh, it's just. So it's a conversation that didn't happen while you were there, but the conversation yeah. happened out in the o- open, in the public, and you were expected somewhat to know at least a little bit about this public conversation. Yes. Yeah, so this, yes, it was already created somewhere else, and then you're just expected to be there, which in the future, when we have our neural footprint, this will be easily accessible. But right now, since we're only <laughs> at the digital footprint, it's not going to quite be where everybody expects it to be, because humans are always... 10 steps ahead of where the current technology is. They just don't know it yet. But I just, I don't understand the engineering of stories now where it all starts from the central medium of the internet and you're just expected to know the story going into it when you're out with friends having a good time. Uh, yeah, that's a tricky part, especially with the whole social network aspect is that stories we can be dropped into sort of in media res where like before it was somebody came and said A and then you heard about B and then you finished on C. Whereas now you might not have been a part of A or even B, but you're suddenly dropped into C. Um, and so that's a tricky part of social networks and is, I think, changing what it means to be a story. Um, so I may hop over to Laura because she is sort of, I think, has a question about our definition or perspective on a story. So do you want to talk about that, Laura? Um, yes. But before that, I think, um, Sam, I think you make a good point that like a lot of our stories are starting elsewhere than in the room where you're having this conversation. Um, and I think like I can see where that's an issue. Although I have a lot of friends who don't use social media or Facebook specifically, but don't use social media a lot in general. So I find that it's not issue there but it's like a really positive thing when I'm talking to my mother because um we can like connect on something like
like, oh, did you see what one of my sisters did? Yeah, I can't believe it. Where was she? Who is she hanging out with? Like we can just connect on like some picture that somebody that we know has shared and like have a conversation about that. And I think that's kind of positive because then like we're in, we're eight hours apart, but we can have this conversation and connect as though we were in the same room. I don't know if that's the same thing. Maybe not. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that is, yeah. I was going to say that is, sounds like the positive flip side to what Sam was talking about. Yeah. 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 But also, has our perspective of storytelling become too narrow? Um, I feel like at times we see stories as the traditional, like, literature or novel or short story, but it sounds like the way that our conversation has been going, that perhaps it hasn't become too narrow. Perhaps um, we're in the process of widening our perspective on storytelling because I, I personally think that um, everything is a story. Um, some of my friends get mad at me because I will just ask them to tell me a story sometimes and they'll say, well, what do you mean? What what's a st- what do you want me to tell you a story about? Literally anything. Tell me about your walk to the bar. Tell me about your morning commute this morning. Tell me about your meeting at two o'clock. That's a story. And I think it can be a story or like um, making up a story about the strangers that are sitting two tables over or um, I mean, flash fiction is my new favorite form of storytelling. Yes. It, Brian so loves flash fiction. It, it makes me so happy. Do you? <laughs> I took yeah. a class on flash fiction uh, last fall. It was oh. amazing. I wish I could have taken a class on flash fiction. It's just slowly become an obsession of mine over the past like five years. It's so great. I was actually going to teach a class in um, flash fiction, but nobody signed up for it. Uh-huh. Oh, well, that's sad. I know. It's okay. I was writing my thesis at the time. Could use the free time. Um, but flash fiction is great. Like um, I wrote a grocery list. And that's a story. That's cool. Um, the one sentence story, the 100 word story, like these are all forms of stories. And I think the more we broaden our perspective of what a story is and can be, the more we will free ourselves in self-narrative and expression. I definitely agree with you on that. Um, and since you had mentioned like a one sentence story, which a lot of people may think like, how can that possibly be a story? But as an example of that, one of my favorites that I've read was this simple sentence which was the last man on earth sat alone in his room and heard a knock at the door (gasps) gives me chills every time yeah so that like (laughs) it's one sentence but it fills you with all of this like like my hair on my arms stood up the first time i read that like that one sentence is able to convey so much in a story and you're able to relate so strongly to that character already um so storytelling can definitely be something as simple as a single sentence, or it can be as complex as something that where each component of it is on a different part of a social network. So it might have been a picture that started on Instagram and somebody talked about it on Facebook and then ended up at a bar with friends where somebody looked at it on their phone and then started a discussion in person. Um, so storytelling can go from something simple to something crazy, complex and diverse. Which is kind of funny, talking about that, it reminded me of the funniest joke in the world, which is a Monty Python skit. So thinking of that, do you think like how that kind of gave like you chills the first time you heard it, and every time I hear it, it kind of gives me chills. Do you feel that there is a perfect like puzzle mixture of words together that will make the greatest story of all time? Kind of like the funniest joke in the world, where they couldn't, where they put two words together, I believe it was, and a guy was in a coma for the three months um (laughs) (laughs) i forgot about that um (laughs) 
But I, I mean, in a sense, you could argue that the, although it's perhaps self-centered of us as humans to think this, um, but the story of humanity from beginning until now, which is all in a sense interconnected, um, that is one massive story. And within that, you have smaller stories, um, which is also another thing that I'm a huge fan of when it comes to storytelling is the idea of a story within a story, which is why A Thousand and One Nights has always been one of my favorite things, because there are so many layers that build upon each other, and it just makes me think to like the interconnectedness of man and how sometimes we can tell a story about a time we were telling somebody else's story. Um, and that is incredibly interesting. And I can several years down the line or even tomorrow tell somebody about how I was talking to friends on a podcast about storytelling and we shared stories within that podcast. Um, so those layers are all interesting. And I, I think to answer your question, Sam, I would argue that just telling the entire story of humankind would, would fit that. Um, but Sean, did you uh, want to share your thoughts to Sam's topic? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've been off. I, I'm not the best uh, storyteller. Um, I failed English in uh, college, I think, three times. Um, <laughs> I did not know this about you. Oh, yeah. No, I... Uh, All like, these stories I, we're learning. Yeah, mm -hmm. I uh, got like super writer's block. Uh, could not finish. Like I, for the life of me, I couldn't write the paper um, three times. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was fun. But yeah, the only thing I think of is just having uh, a too heavy reliance on um, tools to tell the story for us. Uh, so relying on like gadgetry or powerpoints or slide decks and things like that uh, leaning on those as crutches uh doesn't really help tell the story um yeah it doesn't help tell the story it just it, it should help enhance the story that's being told yeah i get where you're coming from i interned for a company in boston when i was writing for subway uh in 2013 and as interns we did a presentation we had our deck and we spent the entire weekend slaving over this project working on the presentation writing up index cards and whatever and I think that the preparation and the deck held us back like having those tools and having um, the time to get ready which essentially is a tool as well held us back and then when it came time to Q&A I think that's when all of us really kind of uh, showed everything that we know and blossomed and were able to tell a much more animated story mm-hmm mm -hmm. I, I constantly run into that just whenever I'm training. So I will, I used to fall victim to like over prepping before facilitating a two or three day training event. Um, and once I got into the room, I realized like I would set all of my notes down. I would barely ever reference the slides that I had behind me. And it was all about the like experience of sharing whatever it was that I was teaching and often doing that through telling of stories and, and sharing like customer experiences and things like that. Um, but whenever I relied too heavily on the technology, it hindered my ability to effectively communicate with everyone. Um, but at the same time, I've also seen people who are terrified as public speakers or terrified to share their own experiences, but they find that they can do it much more effectively if they instead create a video that tells the story or uh, a series of photos to communicate what they're feeling. So I think it is something where you have to find the right tool for the job um, and sometimes because we have grown up with technology we always think that we have to turn to it but sometimes you don't need to and other times you should so it's sort of a, a balance that you have to find mm -hmm. um but with that do you guys have uh, any final thoughts for us before we start to close out the show have a fun of that so so just imagine yourself with a young ed bloom and who's ed bloom yeah 
just imagine yourself with a young Ed Bloom. I, I need to set up the character. Oh, I'm going to do a quick Google search. Yeah. And. Oh, okay. Big Fish. Yes. One of the, one of the best oh, movies God. of all times. So imagine yourself with a young Ed Bloom. And she said that the biggest fish in the river gets that way by never being caught. Mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're saying that um, the best story is the one that isn't the truth is never realized, right? Kind of. There's so many different ways to interpret this quote. That's why I absolutely love it. It's uh, and it just it reminds me when I was younger of like big fish stories, like literal big fish stories and then like figurative, like Mm -hmm. of all of this stuff. And if you think about it, this could be the only storytelling that doesn't make it to social media or make it out to everybody as a big fish story because nobody was there for this it's not really repeated to anybody but then you're hanging out with your crazy uncle and every time you talk to him like every five years that fish gets a foot bigger yes that makes sense i love that um my grandfather has a story that he tells me every time i see him about his first cigarette when he first told me he was 12 and then he was 10 and then he was (laughs) nine um and at first the cigarette was a pilfered cigarette and then it was a cigarette made out of corn husk and it's just I don't really know. I have no idea. Why are you smoking at such a young age anyway? What are you doing? Well, I, I feel that that is a pretty strong spot to to wrap things up on. So, Laura, if people want to keep up with you and possibly your young smoking family, um, <laughs> where could the, we direct them to in order to accomplish that? Um, probably my Twitter, uh, Laura E. Masters. I am working on putting together a professional website, but I don't know anything about making a website. Oh, Just maybe. use Squarespace, which I wish would sponsor our show. Um, but yeah, if you ever need uh, wink, any design wink. help, you've got a, a group of us here, I think, that are willing. That would be great. I Yeah, I've tried Squarespace, but I don't know how to make it anything other than white. <laughs> <laughs> like a really charged statement, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, I, I did not think that it was a racially charged statement, but now that you've pointed that out, that is hilarious. Um, oh, we, we can help add some diversity to your website if you need. Thanks. Uh, That'd be great. <laughs> uh, but on that note, I will, will say uh, thank you again for coming on the show with us. Um, and it was great getting to chat with you on a topic that you're quite passionate about. And yeah, it's, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely nice just getting to catch up with you since you've been gone in Boston land for so long. I'll be back in two weeks. I know. I, I realize that Sam yeah, and I may yeah. actually be at a music festival <laughs> at that time. So, so I'm super Yeah, sad. there's that. <laughs> so I'm just going to have to come out to Boston and visit. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, I have to go to Boston to visit Twitter, too, so we can all do this. Yay. I'm going to go ahead and say that that concludes the 24th episode of All of the Above. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you want to see our show notes full of the links that we've been sharing back and forth as we've talked during this episode, uh, you can, again, find those at alloftheabove.audio slash episode slash 24. And as always, we want to hear from you all, so you can find every which way to get in touch with us by going to alloftheabove.audio slash contact. But the easiest way to reach us is through Twitter, where we can be found at Above Podcast. And finally, if you're enjoying the show and you want to help us out, you can go to alloftheabove.audio slash review, which will take you into iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. Or as Sean pointed out on our last episode, you, if you're using Overcast, you can also tap on there and choose to recommend the show. That helps us out as well. Um, so we'll look forward to joining everyone next week when we discuss comedy with our comrades from the Three Guys Three questions podcast in the meantime go catch a big fish and then let it go